Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. There is a New Testament and early church understanding sometimes that I think has been lost in the modern period and it depicts death and not sin as the primary human problem. As Protestants we tend to think that sin is our primary predicament but Paul and the New Testament and actually the Eastern Church depict the reign of death as the cause of sin. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read from 1 Corinthians 15 further if you'd like to turn there, it describes death as the last enemy. In the book of Revelation, the last thing to be thrown into the lake of fire is death and Hades. And Paul describes his wrestling with sin. He says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And in 1 Corinthians 15, he's picturing, depicting the end of the reign of death with resurrection. Look at verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Here is the final enemy defeated. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've run a kind of test. I I didn't do it to you this morning, but if I gave you the phrase, the blank, the, you know, you can fill it in with sting of death or sting of sin, and which, what is the order of it? We just read it. But the cause and effect, the idea in Paul's depiction, he does not say the sting of sin is death, but rather that the sting of death is sin. Cause and effect are reversed as I think we're often depicting it. And so Paul seems to suggest that sin is a consequence of death. Now obviously we know in the story of Genesis that it's reversed. That is that it's actually that Adam sins, Adam and Eve sin and they die. But after that for everybody else it's reversed. And so death might be our deeper, our more significant problem. And sin might be less the disease than a symptom. And death in this view is the cause of sin. That is where death reigned, Paul will say, sin followed. And so there are many passages within the New Testament that place death at the center of the human predicament. It is the reign of death which accounts for the spread of sin and not vice versa. Because of the misreading, we've talked about Augustine's misreading of Romans 5.12, that he actually reverses our problem. 
Look at Romans 5, it says in verse 12, death spread to all men. In verse 14, death reigned. In verse 15, the many died. In verse 17, death reigned through the one. That is that Adam is that the head of a race and we just know this, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, but everybody believes you're going to die. In verse 21, sin reigned in death. That is, the power of sin is in the situation of death. And so as Paul concludes there, it's sin that reigned in death and not the other way around. Now the devil is part of this equation. In fact, sin, death, and the devil are going to be kind of the trinity of evil that we encounter and the devil is not so much a kind of generic tempter, but the New Testament will describe Satan as holding the power of death. As it says in Hebrews 2.14, the death of Jesus was intended to destroy, quote, him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. The devil uses death, he enslaves people to the fear of death. 1 John 3.8 the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so, what's the devil's work? Well, by defeating death, Christ defeats the work of the devil. Certainly, it is sin, death, and the devil that is the problem. And this victory over the devil, that's the picture in Revelation. It's reaffirmed. It's the picture of the resurrected Lord. He's declared... It says he's holding the keys of death and Hades. This is what has enslaved. This is what has locked us up. Death, once under the power of Satan, is now under the power of Christ. Now this does several things. One, it organically connects Christ's death, his manner of death, his embrace of death, his non-resistance of death, his non-fear of death, to salvation. And it connects his resurrection. You know, this is 1 Corinthians 15. It connects it directly. What's the problem? Well, it's the problem of sin, death, and the devil. Christ defeats that. And that's true in the resurrection. So the predicament of death, which it's corruption, it's inherent deception. It's often depicted as the devil deceiving us through death. The loss it's directly addressed in the life-giving truth of the work of Christ. But I'm afraid we may have cause and effect backward. Well, that's my basic premise. That's real. I'm just going to say that one thing today. But now I'm going to go back to, I think, the earliest theologian of the church. And this is Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch was friends of Polycarp. We believe they were both the disciples of John. Some say, again, this is tradition, how true the tradition might be, that Peter himself appointed Ignatius, the bishop in Antioch. So we're going back as early as you can go in the post-apostolic period or in the, the apostolic father. So these are people who knew the apostles and they're teaching then what they receive from the apostles. So I'm just going to go back to what Ignatius says. And Ignatius then is living under Emperor Trajan. And we know there was a persecution under Trajan. And Ignatius refused to bow to Emperor Trajan. 
And we don't quite know why, but the emperor is having Ignatius brought to Rome, we think to be thrown into the Colosseum and be killed by wild beasts. And so he's on this journey, he's going to Rome, he knows he's going to be martyred. And in the process, he writes seven letters to seven churches on the way to Rome, partly saying, well, I'm going to be martyred, don't try to interrupt this thing, but also leaving last encouragement and describing then his theology, his basic you know, understanding. And so he's working with the categories that he received from the apostles, working with what he had of the New Testament. You understand we don't even think the New Testament had been formed yet. And the danger, I'm afraid, is that because of the misreading, we've talked about Augustine's misreading of Romans 5.12, that he actually reverses our problem. I'm afraid that from Augustine to Calvin, we've kind of obscured the theological focus that I'm going to describe today. It's a very simple understanding, but we have interference from focus on total depravity, determinism. But if we go back to these earliest apostolic fathers, this focus that I've just described comes through. And so when Ignatius writes, he's marching to death. I think that's a key part of this. That the march toward death is the same march that Jesus went on to Jerusalem. You know, when Jesus said, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die, Peter said, no, Lord, you can't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so I think that his theology and what he's doing fit together. That is, he's going to embrace the reality of his own martyrdom. And so for Ignatius, fear of death is the corruption or disease which Satan wields so as to give death the final word. And his journey and his letters are a demonstration of how one can put off the corrupting power of death by reversing our instinct. You know, our instinct, of course, is not to go to Jerusalem, not to go to Rome, but to run the other direction. It's not to embrace death. And that, I think that's the image in taking up the cross, is that we are, in fact, to accept in resurrection faith this reality. And he writes one of the letters to the Ephesians, which was a major church, about the death and resurrection of Christ. And he describes the death and resurrection as the medicine. So what's the sickness? It's the, the corruption of death. The corruption of sickness of death in its death-denying orientation. And so he's going to use this language, which is very biblical language. Death is corrupting precisely. It's corrupting physically, but it's also corrupting morally. And of course, what Ignatius and the early teachers are up against are the docetists. And the docetists are a group of false teachers that are saying, well, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He didn't have a natural body like we had. And Ignatius is taking on this false teaching as he's going. He says, for these false teachers, quote, he only seemed to suffer. That is, he didn't really suffer. 
And he says, they themselves only seem to be Christians. <laughs> he said, they're not really Christians. If you deny the death and resurrection of Jesus, Ignatius saying, you're not really a Christian. And Ignatius grants that it may happen exactly as they believe. I'm quoting again. As they believe, so it shall happen unto them when they shall be divested of their bodies and be mere evil spirits. He said it may be their prayer is granted, but if you are divested of the body, if you lose the body and become a spirit, you become an evil spirit. I think he's being ironic here, but the point is that those who deny the reality of the flesh and they labor under, he quote, the uncurable or incurable disease, he says they're denying the cure and he refers to Christ as the physician. And so he's describing death as a corruption, a disease. He's describing Christ as the physician, the doctor who can heal the disease. And he says this, he explains the whole gospel very straightforwardly. He refers to John 1.14. For the word was made flesh. I'm quoting Ignatius. Being incorporeal, he was in the body, being impassable. He was a, in a passable body. Being immortal, he was in a mortal body. Being life, he became subject to corruption. That he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. There's the gospel. Life and immortality, they are not innate to man. They come from God. Paul tells Timothy, God alone is immortal. Life and immortality come from God. For were he, I'm quoting Ignatius, to regard us according to our works, we should cease to be. And so God was manifested in Christ, quote, for the renewal of eternal life. Christ is the constant source of our life, he says. And of faith and love. And by the way, love is the, you know, where we're headed with this whole description. There are two choices. You can have fear of death, death resistance, and death acceptance is synonymous with love. How do you love your neighbor? It's by laying down your life for your neighbor. He says that Christ breathes immortality into the church. And apart from him, we do not possess true life. And of course here I think Ignatius is just reflecting what we see in Hebrews that says the devil reigns through a captive humanity, captive through death. He is reflecting Romans 5.21. He is following Paul's notion that sin reigned in death. He's following 1 Corinthians. The sting of death is sin. According to an Eastern Orthodox theologian, John Romanides, he expands upon this. He says, because of the tyrant death, man is unable to live according to his original destiny of selfless love. You know, if there's only so much stuff to go around, it's a zero-sum game, there's only so much life, you better grab as much as you can. And so he has the instinct of self-preservation, firmly rooted with him from birth. 
And Romanides goes on to say, because he lives constantly under the fear of death, he continuously seeks bodily and psychological security, and thus becomes individualistically inclined and utilitarian in attitude. Now, I think Romanides is giving us a kind of modern twist on what Ignatius is describing. Ignatius says there's two fates. There's death and life. This is Ignatius. Seeing then all things have an end, these two things are simultaneously set before us. Death and life, and everyone shall go unto his place. He says there's two kinds of coin, and each has stamped upon it either the character of God or the character of the world. And the difference is that believing, the believing stamp in love, they have the character of the Father. Those who deny him, here I'm quoting him, they become advocates of death rather than of truth. That's an interesting picture. There is life, there is truth, those two go together. And there is death and deception, death and a lie. But there is no means to life apart from the truth of Christ. It is by Christ alone that man has life. He says, he goes back and refers to the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the prophets. He says, all of these have for the object the attaining of unity with God. These two proclaim the gospel before the gospel and place their hope in Christ and waited for him in whom believing they were saved and they pointed to this one in whom, quote, is the perfection of immortality. He tells the Tralians, one of the churches, he says that by believing in his death, you may escape death. That is, the manner of his death is already a defeat of death. He warns the Smyrnians that those who deny Jesus, that they deny he had a natural body, they've already succumbed to death. They've been defeated. And he equates belief in the suffering of Jesus with resurrection. That is, believing in the passion of Christ is really already a participation in the resurrection of Christ. This is Ignatius. But he who does not acknowledge this has in fact altogether denied him, being enveloped in death. Yea, be it far from me to make any mention of them. He doesn't name the false teachers. I think he knows them by name. He says, until they repent and return to Christ's passion, which is our resurrection. That is, believing in the suffering of Christ is to believe in the resurrection of Christ. That God suffered and died, defeating death, that's already a belief in the resurrection because it's a reversal of the slavery. And so death is corrupting, and then it poses a moral orientation. It unleashes the fleshly passions as the mortality of the flesh reigns unchallenged. And in this sense, there's no division. You know, we need not do what has happened in Protestantism. We divide up the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But in this picture, all of these is combating the same foe. The corruption of death is overcome in his life, the manner of his life. It's overcome in his passion, in the suffering, 
leading up to the cross. It's overcome in his taking up of death, and it's overcome in his resurrection. His life is a reversal of the normal life in regard to death, the orientation to death. Ignatius says about the false teachers, and here he sounds a lot like Peter, he says they're dumb dogs, they're raving mad, and their bite is poisonous as they inflict the original line. Of course, what he's picturing here is the lie of the devil. You won't die. And the picture is that, you know, in some way you're, you, you lose your body and you, your soul goes to heaven. They would obscure how it is that Satan and death ensnare and enslave. And so the truth of Christ, of his life, of his death and resurrection, exposes the lie of Satan who is positing a death-dealing lie. Now, I really just, I've just given you the gospel according to Ignatius. And what's amazing in this is what's not there. All the things that are missing. But if we add these things, we're going to confuse it. There's no consideration, first of all, of any kind of legal framework. There's no consideration of future punishment. There's just the picture that sin is a disease and Christ cures the disease by uniting his own immortality with the mortal body. So Christ became subject to corruption, which is simultaneously, it's a physical and moral corruption. And this is evident in the false teachers who have been, become corrupt. Their corruption is that they are subject to death, but in denying the reality, they make themselves completely corrupt. Ignatius knows nothing. He does not speak of future punishment. He knows nothing of limited atonement, individual election. You either trust yourself to the love of Christ, or you attempt, and he describes it as it's a kind of like the way you eat. You can eat herbage of a different kind, and it may be poison. These unbelieving say that he only seemed to suffer, and it can be said of them, they themselves only seem to exist. He's saying they have given themselves completely over to the unreality of the delusion of death. And so the descetic claim that Christ did not come in human flesh, Ignatius is saying this is a lie from the devil and is equivalent to the original lie of the serpent. He says, flee therefore those evil offshoots of Satan, which produce death-bearing fruit, whereof if anyone tastes, he instantly dies. Taste of this lie, and you die. And it's evident that such men, he says, are not planting good fruit. He says, for if they were, they would appear as branches of the cross. The cross is a different kind of tree producing a different kind of fruit, an incorruptible fruit, that death, disease, corruption will not destroy this fruit. And so in denying the embodiment of Christ, they deny the reality of the passion and they leave themselves subject to deadly passions. That's the language. That is that Christ's passion defeats human passion. Death resistance is undone by Christ's death acceptance. And Christ calls you through his passion 
And so the true branches springing from the cross enflesh themselves, embody themselves with the clothing of Christ, such as meekness and love. He says they become the imitators of his suffering. We take up the love of Christ by taking up the suffering of Christ. And these things are salvific because he says faith that is of the flesh of the Lord and love that is of the blood of Jesus. That is the incarnation of Christ. The flesh and blood of Christ enables us to be truly loving, truly faithful, truly incarnate and not fleeing death. Living in faith is by definition to live by the flesh and blood of Christ. So there's no room here for a kind of faith in your head. Oh, I believe in my heart, and that's enough. Living by faith and love connects one to the incarnate, fleshly humanity of Christ. He says, by which we can continue in intimate union with Christ our Lord. This union can be disrupted, he's saying, through this heretical tendency to deny embodiment, which is exactly the type of the lie of Satan. It is the heretical tendency. It was then and it is today. This is the irony of this. And so the alternative is to trust in the works of the body of Christ, which bring about life in the face of death. So the flesh and blood of Jesus directly counters the deadly disease of, quote, depravity, foolishness, evil, and vanity. He says, I arm you beforehand by my admonitions as my beloved and faithful children in Christ, furnishing you with the means of protection. He's saying literally making you drink beforehand what will preserve you against the deadly disease of unruly men, by which do ye flee from the disease of the goodwill of Christ our Lord. Ignatius uses language of ransom. He ransomed us from death and the devil, but at the same time he's describing this as a cleansing. He might make us clean from the corruption of death, from our ungodliness. And so life is equated with purification. Death is equated with corruption. That is this death thing, this corruption thing. It's not just something that happens to your body. It's a moral orientation. And we're rid of that orientation. And so Ignatius is very similar in thought to Second Peter. And many people think that he may have been a disciple of Peter. Peter reminds them in Second Peter of the power and promises of Jesus that as you may become partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Peter talks a lot about corruption. He calls the false teachers dogs and pigs. Sounds a lot like Ignatius here. We overcome the corruption of these through the purification and healing by participation in the divine nature in and through Christ Jesus. I'm just quoting 2 Peter 1.4. So the divine nature is the cure to the predicament of death, and Christ then has imparted the divine nature through his incarnation and is made available through his flesh and blood. It's made available, you know, the church 
is the place in which we see the incarnation continue. This is the church historian Philip Schaff, and he sums up Ignatius' theology. He says, the central idea is the renovation of man now under the power of Satan and death, which are undone in Christ, the risen Savior, who is our true life and endows us with immortality. Jesus' new humanity is the cure for our corrupted humanity. It is what the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, points to, the cleansing remedy to drive away evil. So here's the simple gospel. And Ignatius says, I'm giving you a very simple idea, a very simple gospel. But what is missing is the idea of death or wrath as a legal category. The notion of a, you know, this is Calvin's doctrine of limited atonement. And so I think the theological landscape has been so changed up, it's hard for us to even access this simple gospel. For Ignatius' death and its corruption are the condition God would destroy through the incarnation. And really, next to the will of God, there is the temporary kingdom of Satan, you know, who exercises his power through corruption. And it's just that. Those, there's the two kingdoms and man is in the position of choosing. Man is oppressed by the devil, but he's still free, at least in regard to following one or the other. You can choose the kingdom. He says the world and God each has its own character. The world, death, and God, life. It exists now under the power of corruption, but in Christ is being cleansed. So the gospel, I think the original gospel, that we may have lost out on, is to be set free from the slavery to the fear of death, to be liberated from self-interest. And this then opens up the act of genuine love. Christ's victory in our lives over sin, death, and the devil is love. This is First John. I'll close with this passage. He says, this is resurrection life, 1 John 3, 14. Quote, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Love is the moment when we move from death to life. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.